gift. Uh, we're going to be in Malachi, which is the last book of your Old Testament, uh, right before Matthew, the book of Malachi, chapter 1. I'm going to just read three verses this morning from verses 2 to 4. If you have one of these blue Bibles, uh, this is on page 889 in that Bible. So Malachi chapter 1, uh, verses 2 through 4. This is the word of the Lord. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that as we come under your word, Lord, that you'd meet us through the book of Malachi this morning. Lord, we come knowing that our efforts are vain in this place and let unless by your spirit you speak to us. And so we humble ourselves under your word. We're not in authority over it. We want to receive what you have to say to us this morning. So speak, O Lord. We're listening. Lord, work in our children as well as they head toward their classes. May they love and worship Jesus more than they did when they walked in this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, you may be seated, and kids can go ahead and be dismissed to your classes. Um, I'm going to have Kyle Myers come up here. Kyle's going to be bringing us the word this morning. But as he comes up, I just want to say a couple of different things. One of the things that uh, we've really had the privilege of doing at this church um, is having a heart to see, uh, in particular, young men who have a desire to teach and preach and communicate and disciple and give God's word to other people, to see those young men trained up and given opportunities uh, to grow in their gifts uh, part of why this is huge on our heart, as many of you know, we have a, a desire. We think that the, the scriptures command us as a church to be a multiplying church, and we can't multiply churches unless we see more, more, more guys that can preach raised up and brought forward. And so uh, part of that is not just on us as pastors obeying what uh, 1 Timothy 2.2 says, what I've entrusted to you pass on to other men. Uh, It's not just us obeying part of that. Part of us being a church that raises up leaders is you as a church uh, being both patient and uh, eager to receive from all kinds of people, not just the person that's in the pulpit every Sunday. And you as a church have really been marked by that. And uh, you've done that through the summers. We've had Isaac come and preach, and now as we have Kyle. And so uh, lean in this morning. This is actually Kyle's first time preaching. Well, no, second time now because you preached at the 9 a.m. service. Um, and so uh, I, I know that the Lord has all kinds of good for us this morning as we lean into what he wants to say to us through his, his word through Kyle. So, so grateful for, for Kyle. Kyle was, uh, many of you know if you've been here, a ministry intern for us this past year at Summit. He led our youth program over the past year. That ended uh, in May, and Kyle's moved on to some other things now, but continues to be a faithful member, uh, part of the community group here at church. And we're just so grateful for what the Lord's doing in his life and that we get to, uh, to launch him out into the pulpit this morning. So, uh, Kyle, grateful for you, brother, and so excited. Can you guys give uh, Kyle a hand as he's up here? Yeah. Thanks, man. Thank well, thanks, Ben. I also just want to take a minute and say thank you to you as a congregation. As Ben said, it's a huge gift uh, to guys like me who, 
whose lives have been transformed and changed because of God's word. It's a passion and something that I owe a great debt of my life to, and uh, it's a great joy to be able to preach to you this morning. Hopefully, you get to taste some of that uh, as we dive through the book of Malachi together, but I want to say thanks for just the opportunity to share and to learn and, and to grow as a communicator of God's word. That's a huge gift. So uh, this morning, as you heard from the reading, we'll be diving into the book of Malachi together. But before we get into Malachi, I actually want to share a little bit of my own story with you. This story takes part uh, about 10 years ago. is kind of the middle of my senior year of high school. And uh, it was about halfway through my senior year that I kind of began to have this itch and uh, began to wonder what life would look like after graduation. Uh, The plan at that point was to go to college in California. I'd been accepted, but I kind of started to have some sort of um, a desire for God and to experience him and to experience him in a cross-cultural context. And so um, this began kind of a search for me. And uh, like I said, around January, of that year, I revealed to my parents my plans to basically go into a six-month missions school. And this was met with some apprehension by them uh, upon first hearing of this, not because they're opposed to missions. I actually was introduced to missions from them, but because this wasn't the original plan. Uh, I had, like I said, been accepted to go to school and told them that I'd be deferring my acceptance and taking part in this six-month venture overseas. And so, Six months later, in the month of August, I uh, landed in Sunshine Coast, Australia, and about two hours after landing, I wondered what on earth I was doing. Why did I make this decision at 19 to go halfway across the world? And uh, I missed home dearly. To say I was homesick would definitely be an understatement. Uh, But this season, this six months, uh, we would be in Australia and we'd be in a few other places after that, uh, would prove to be, at that point in my life, some of the most impactful and profound uh, of any other season. The ways that God met me and spoke to me and revealed himself to me are deeply, deeply meaningful memories for me, and I think about them still, often, even 10 years later. But like I said, this school was only six months long. So I'm gearing up to come home, preparing for what that would look like. And I knew that that transition could be a little bit challenging for for people that come home. Um, But I was ready, or so I thought. And so um, upon coming home, I I decided, okay, I'm going to fast for five days. And I'm going to pray that God would continue his work in my life because I was determined that the experiences and the joy and the things that I had learned uh, in Australia couldn't just be something in the past. They couldn't just be this camp experience for me, but this had to be real and God had to continue his work in my life. Well, kind of like going to Australia, it didn't take long to begin to realize that coming home was not what I hoped it would be. The experiences and the joy that I had felt in my time away soon began to vanish. And things quickly went from being the best six months of my life to the worst six months of my life. I fell into deep depression, uh, anxiety. My friends were all at college. And at this point, I was unaware of what my future would look like. 
I was working a job I couldn't stand, and I began to wonder where on earth God was. The very thing I feared was the reality that seemed to be closing in around me. Where was God and why on earth was this happening? I think as humans, we all face seasons of disappointment. Even disappointment and frustration with God himself, right, if we're honest. We so quickly can become blindsided when our hopes and expectations and desires go unmet. Disillusionment starts to set in and there is even a sense that we might become apathetic to the things of God, even idolatrous. And when I think of situations such as a marriage that started out with great joy and anticipation of all that God would do between two people, the purpose that they would have together, and then years down the road, loneliness begins to set in, even in a marriage. I think of someone who could be racked with anxiety and depression, and you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, and you wonder how a follower of Jesus could handle such things and why you have them. But ultimately, you feel disappointed and unseen by God, wondering why he doesn't take this from you. I think of a child who's been raised in a family who follows Jesus and loves Jesus and has done everything they can to impart this into their kids. And years down the road, this child decides that that's not for them anymore. And so years and years of prayer, of prayer go into uh, this, family's, this family's effort to win back their child and nothing seems to happen. And maybe you're here this morning and you're single and time seems to be this thing that continues to move forward and you wonder where on earth this other person is that you're supposed to spend your life with. Or maybe you're someone who has great plans for the future or you're in those plans and you had this sense that God was leading you somewhere into some new venture, to some new job and situation and suddenly once you get there you feel like the rug has been pulled out right from under you and you've been in a question all over again if you had heard correctly from the Lord. Was this really where he was leading you? I think these and similar situations are all ones that we can find ourselves in as humans, right? Follower, followers of Jesus and non-Christians. Some of us can relate to these in more extreme ways, some in less, but one thing is for sure. As humans, we face disappointment. We face deferred hope and a sense of where is God. And I think this is the very condition that Malachi begins to address in his book. What happens to us and what do we do when our hopes go unmet and God doesn't do what, he, what we expected him to do? What do we do when unmet expectations become the norm rather than the exception? This is the very thing I believe Malachi would have us consider this morning. And so the book of Malachi is, is similar in some ways in its structure to um, the book of Habakkuk. There's this dialogue and exchange question and answer with God, but here in Malachi, it's actually an, an entire nation entering into this dialogue with God. So Habakkuk is, is one man, uh, but here in Malachi, there's an entire nation kind of calling God to, to stand, so to speak. And Habakkuk ends with this sense of faith, this sense that God is sufficient and trustworthy and his character is true. But Malachi ends with a different tone. 
one that leaves the reader to decide what they will do with Malachi's message. And much like the book of Jonah, Malachi ends a little bit abruptly without much resolution, telling us that Israel may not have actually responded to God as Malachi had called for. But we, as the readers of Malachi, are called to respond differently than Israel. And so as we walk through Malachi, I believe we'll see what it might look like for us to respond to God in the midst of our own unmet hopes, our unmet expectations, and even our sin. There's three things I think Malachi would have us consider this morning in our time together. If you're taking notes, you can feel free to write these down. The first thing is I believe Malachi would want us to see the reality of Israel's sin. What's the essence and the heart of their sin? Number two, the repercussions or the fallout of Israel's sin and how that manifests itself. And three, the remedy for Israel's sin, where hope is finally met with fulfillment. Go ahead and turn with me to Malachi chapter one. Be looking at verses two through four. Um, And let's begin to look at the reality of Israel's sin. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Why might the people in Israel's day be asking such a question as this? God, how have you loved us? Where is your love? Well, this summer we've been going through the minor prophets. We've walked through some of these and have, have heard and read and seen Israel's story thus far. And we know this about Israel, that they were a people that were given a land. God had promised to them a land way back in the book of Genesis. And they had entered into that land. And built into this kind of going into the land was a covenant, a special, unique relationship uh, with God himself that Israel would enter. And so it doesn't take long, unfortunately, for them to begin to rebel, for them to be, begin to disobey this covenant and built into this relationship was the sense that if Israel continued to perpetuate their disobedience year after year, generation after generation, that another nation, another kingdom would come and actually remove them from the land by force. And we see this happening. The northern part of Israel is taken into uh, the nation of Assyria and roughly 722 BC. And the southern nation of Judah is taken into the nation of Babylon and roughly 586 B.C. And therein, Judah would spend the next 70 years in exile, living in a land that wasn't their own. But after 70 years, they were given an edict to be able to return to the land of their fathers. This land that was promised to them that they were removed from, they get the opportunity to return. And with this return, there was this anticipation, this great hope that God's temple would be restored to its former beauty, that he would dwell amongst his people again in the blessings of God, such as prosperity, health, victory over their enemies, and flourishing 
would be experienced by Israel once again. If you know the story, you know that these didn't take place, unfortunately. And even though they followed the command of their prophets to rebuild the temple, it was mostly disappointing. And they were not experiencing the blessings that they hoped for. In fact, they were getting what seemed like many of the curses and were faced with adversity, hardship, and strife all over again. Even on the backside of exile, things continued to be the same. Now, I think it's easy for us to be kind of hard on Israel at times, um, but I think it's important for us in the book of Malachi to not think of them simply as kind of a whining child who didn't just get what they want. I'm sure some of them have that attitude. They're humans. Sometimes we have that attitude. But more so, I think it's important for us to consider that Israel as a nation at this point, coming back to the land, is actually disillusioned to what they expected God to do. Consider living somewhere for 70 years in one home amongst one family in one neighborhood and picking up and moving everything after living there for that long. To come to a land that was barely livable. To put in hard work and effort and struggle. And it would take a great amount of courage for Israel, the people of Judah, to return from Babylon into this land. It would take a great amount of hope to believe that God would reward such action as this. And so it's into this context, this post-exile context, that Malachi chapter 1 picks up. And we hear Israel beginning to wonder why God would allow these things to happen. How could he say he loves them? And why doesn't he seem to be keeping his end of the covenant? But upholding his covenant with Israel after hundreds and hundreds of years, after exile, after all that they've done to spurn his name is exactly what God is doing. He is being faithful. His proof, according to chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, is actually the difference, the distinction between Israel and Edom. God's response to Israel is, in fact, that he has loved them. Look at Edom, he says. Israel has been given this covenant, this unique relationship with Yahweh, and Edom was never given that. And so even though Edom was destroyed because of their sin, and Israel was exiled because of their sin, Israel is getting what Edom never got, a chance to rebuild. You are my people, says Yahweh to Israel. I love you dearly, and I've been nothing but faithful to you. It's Israel who doesn't love God. And they begin to question God's character more and more, leading them to question, what is the point of all this? What's the point of our effort? Why did we come back here? Disappointment after disappointment, expectations continue to go unmet year after year, and God's absence or seeming absence leads them further and further away. Go ahead and turn with me to chapter 3 in the book of Malachi, verse 13. Let's get a sense of kind of this situation now. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit 
of our keeping his charge or of walking in mourning before the Lord of hosts. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. The situation in Israel has gotten to a point where they see their covenant relationship with Yahweh as vain and pointless because it's not what they hoped it would be. Even though God's good character is being displayed to them by allowing them to return to the land and he's remaining faithful to his covenant with them despite the rebellion, the reality and the essence, the heart of Israel's sin is that they don't believe God to be who he says he is. And in fact, Israel is not the first ones. This is precisely Adam and Eve's story in the garden. God had given them a land as well. And Adam and Eve decided that actually, even though God is here among us, he, we don't think that this God is who he says he is. He might not be as good as we think. And so they begin to question his character and their repercussions, the decision that they make as a result would affect the world forever. And this is much of the plot tension, the story of the Bible. People made by God to worship him who continually question his trustworthiness and character. These words of Israel that we read, how have you loved us? These words echo and they begin to reverberate in our own stories, in our own hearts, don't they? Maybe not in this season exactly, maybe in a season past, and maybe in a season ahead. But I'm sure at some level you've experienced this. The conviction that surely God would do something, but then nothing seems to happen. This feels all too familiar for you. For some of you whose stories I know, this is a real thing. You want good things. You want godly things. And you pray day in and day out that God would move. And you wonder when on earth this will happen. Will it ever happen? God, where are you? Do you really love me and do you really care? Maybe... Our experience isn't so much a catastrophic event, but rather this kind of slow burn of unmet longings, hopes, and desires that continue to perpetuate day after day, year after year. You've read the Bible, and you know that God's people don't have it easy, but you never thought this would be the situation that you'd be in, that God himself would actually maybe feel like the enemy. You might not necessarily be running to blatant idolatry to satisfy these hopes or get control of the situation, or maybe you are. Uh, Israel seemed to be doing that in many ways. But maybe the slow burn of disappointment over and over again of God not answering and not meeting you leads you to question his goodness and his character. And little by little, you see prayer, fellowship with him, trust, and your own heart begin to distance itself more and more. The answers that you're hoping to receive from God seem to be ever absent, and the struggle of day in, day out following Jesus becomes less hopeful, less uh, intimate, and more challenging. 
Is he really trustworthy? And is he who he says he actually is? The questioning of God's character is at the heart of all of our struggle, right? But it might manifest itself differently depending on our situations and circumstances. And so this leads us to our second point, the repercussions of Israel's sin. Israel's sin in the book of Malachi have great repercussions and they manifest themselves through a handful of ways. In Malachi, we see the priests become corrupt. They were given the law to teach and instruct the people in God's ways and in his character, but it's said of them that actually they're making the people worse by their instruction, even causing Israel to become more corrupt. And as the priests fail to uphold God before the people, Israel themselves become complacent in many ways. The sacrifices that they bring to the temple become blemished. We see in chapter 2 that divorce has become a widespread practice. They begin to marry those outside of this covenant with Yahweh, leading the people astray. There's a lack of generosity towards God's temple and his mission. And there's a wide sense of injustice and corruption that's permeated the people of Israel. And into this, in chapter 1, verse 10, God says this, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. It seems things have gotten so bad in Israel that Yahweh himself actually wishes that they would close down shop because they're doing a disservice to his name by continuing this way. And the point I think Malachi is making is not so much that questioning God leads us here in America to do the exact same thing as Israel necessarily. We don't have a temple. We don't have sacrifices. We don't have priests, right? But the point that Malachi is making is that questioning God's character can move us to a place of validating our doubts and acting on them. Our experiences over time begin to validate these subtle assumptions that God must not really be as good as he says he is. As those become falsely affirmed over and over again, we might not find ourselves offering blemished sacrifices like Israel, but we might start to care less and less about his word, his people, his mission. We might become less concerned with the health of our marriage, the hearts of our children, the people at work and in our neighborhood. It starts with questioning God and then we suddenly become a little bit more hard, a little bit more sarcastic, and a little bit more cynical as our way of coping with these unmet hopes and desires. The slow drip, so to speak, of hopes being unsatisfied over time begin kind of innocent. They begin sounding like, well, I guess it wasn't the Lord's will. But then over time, they continue to go unmet, continue to be disappointed. We thought things would be different, and they're not. And so then our words become Israel's words. God, do you even love me? Do you even care? And rather than admitting that we have real hopes and desires and that we want God to do good things, we, through sarcasm and cynicism, pretend and tell ourselves that we don't have any hopes or desires for good things. We numb ourselves. Our sarcasm and our cynicism are really defense mechanisms for keeping 
others, God, and maybe even ourselves out, right? Keeping those things at bay. And we might not admit it, but we're actually afraid. As much as we pretend we're impervious to hurt, we're actually afraid that we'll live in a state of continual pain and disappointment over and over again, that God won't come through. Our deferred hopes, our disillusionment, and idolatry have manifested themselves in our hearts through this sarcasm, through our doubts, and we begin blaming God, or we shame ourselves for not being enough or doing enough. And so where do we turn? Malachi 3.7, where he says, Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And so this brings us to our third and final point, the remedy for Israel's sin and the response that Malachi might want us to have. Look with me at Malachi 3, verses 1 through 5. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. The remedy for Israel's sin, and I would propose for us this morning, is the arrival of God. In the midst of Israel's doubting, anger, and sin, God promises to come personally. And look what happens. For those who receive his arrival, everything is made new. The writers of the New Testament tell us that Jesus is the fulfillment of this, that he is the arrival of God to his temple. And he is God's good character displayed before humanity, showing that in the midst of our bleakness and barrenness, God would enter in and offer his very life. Be honest with me for a second. What's, what's underlying our disappointments, our fears, our doubts, and the sense of where is God? Isn't it a sense of this isn't how it should be? This isn't how life should go. In all your hopeless moments, if you're honest, isn't there a fear that this is how things will continue forever? But look again with me at verses three through four in Malachi chapter three. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness 
to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. The very thing that you fear, this perpetual hopelessness and this assumption that disappointment will blanket all of your life, the sense that even God is somewhere else other than right here with me, really has in it this underbelly of fear that you aren't in like you thought you were, that you're not loved and cared for like you thought. In these fears, if you're honest, there's this sense that really you're on the outside. And what Malachi says maybe isn't really true. The thing that can cause true hopelessness, true disillusionment, true separation, we're told, has been dealt with in the death and resurrection of Jesus. You, according to Malachi and the New Testament, are made righteous. And because of that, your fear of being on the outside is untrue. You're welcomed in. You're welcomed in with all your doubts, with all your questions, with all your disappointments, to all that God is. This enables you to hold both joy and pain at the same time. Anxiety and peace, knowing that your disappointment will not be forever. Jesus is the proof that God will never be anything but himself to us. And this is the remedy. There's a place in the scriptures unlike any other in its description of who God is. I'm thinking of Exodus 34, verses six through seven. The immediate context here is Moses is on Mount Sinai and he asks God to show him his glory. So God is gracious and he passes by Moses and this is what he proclaims. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Other than this passage being utterly profound in and of itself, uh, there's something else that makes this even more amazing. As Moses is on Mount Sinai, the people of Israel are at the bottom of this mountain, currently worshiping a golden calf, proclaiming that this, in fact, is their covenant God. Right into the middle of the brokenness and sin of Israel, God proclaims himself as good He will never be anything but good, loving, and faithful to his own. Your unmet hopes, your anger, your disappointments, and disillusionments do not cause God to be disillusioned, nor do they cause him to be distant, even though it might feel as such. Jesus is evidence that even your sin has no power to to cause God to be anything other than than true to who he is towards you. Look with me at Malachi chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. 
Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. This is covenant language. This language is similar to the language God used when he formed Israel as a people in a covenant with them. And Israel was God's people, but upon God's arrival, according to Malachi, a new covenant people would be formed. And these people will have something distinctly different than Israel. We haven't touched on this yet this morning, but for God to promise that he would come to his temple once again was uh, a huge deal for Israel, to say the least. If you remember, Solomon in the Old Testament begins to build the temple, this place that God would dwell. And so he builds a temple and completes it, And it's met with God filling the temple with his glory. There's this evidence, this cloud that fills the temple, signifying that God is amongst his people. Skipping hundreds of years later, as we've said, Israel rebelled in the land and is going into exile by another nation. And the prophet Ezekiel is prophesying in the midst of this. And in a vision, he looks on the temple and actually sees this cloud the glory of God actually being removed from the temple, that God's dwelling was no longer here. And so for Malachi to say, this is coming back, this is a big deal for Israel. Listen as I read Acts 2, 1 through 4. Jesus had just gone up into heaven. His disciples are left wondering what on earth life is supposed to look like for them. And this is what Acts says. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. The glory of the Lord has returned to his temple. You, Christian, are that temple. You're the place that God has filled and dwells in. And so as we consider what it means for us to welcome God's arrival, to meet him, may we start from a place that recognizes that he is already with you. Not only do you know his character, as we read in Exodus, but you actually have this God with you personally by his Holy Spirit. If you remember how I said we can so easily enter this place of sarcasm and cynicism and hardness and numbness because it's really a way for us to keep everything kind of at bay, to have control over all these things, being impervious to hurt, we think. I think Malachi invites us to consider what it might look like to invite God into that, to meet him in the midst of your hurt and to welcome others into those questions and your disillusionment and your pain and even your sin.
Isn't this itself an evidence of trust in God's character? As you go to him with your struggles, you're saying, I don't know why things are the way they are. And in fact, if I was God, I might do things differently. But ultimately, in meeting God, you're able to say, I don't need to know because I have you and you're good. And in so doing, you're proclaiming that you have the answer in the midst of your quest for answers. Shot through your anxiety, your doubts, and your sin is an invitation from God to come and to meet with him and to find that the answer you really long for is connection to Jesus himself. This is the remedy. And in meeting this God, we're not left wanting like so many other things that we turn to. But we find he's everything we ever hoped he would be and more. And you, as a Christian, as a human even, you're created to hope. You're created to desire the things of God and see them come to fruition. And Malachi's answer and the answer of the story of the scriptures is not to hope less, but to hope in a God who is utterly trustworthy. And in some ways, there will always be disappointments and confusion and struggle until the end of this age. But a new world will dawn. And that new day will come about and we will see the Lord in his temple, in his new creation, where our expectations are found to be too little and our hearts never know unmet desire again. This is the love and the character of God towards us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are here among us. And despite our emotions, despite what we feel, despite the struggles and the fears and the hopelessness, we proclaim together this morning that you are trustworthy. And in the midst of us not knowing what's ahead, not knowing where we are, we confess that you have made yourself knowable. And in that, we find refuge and we find hope. And we ask that you would beckon our hearts this morning to enter in to relationship with you again and afresh, to come to you with all of our struggles, with all of our sin, knowing that you welcome us because of your life, death, and resurrection. So be with us this morning. Continue to motivate our hearts with your truth and with your hope as we move out from this place. Amen.